Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Shaping Life into Story with Jesse Cole, Bree Lee and Gregory Smith in conversation with Zachary Jane, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, and thank you for coming here on this lovely Saturday to Byron Writers Festival. Today we are discussing how one writes oneself. So writing yourself into the story. And I'm here with the three panel panellists, Jesse Cole, Gregory P. Smith and Bree Lee, if you could give them a round of applause to welcome them. I'll press you their books very quickly, so just to contextualise it for you. Jesse's story uh, called Staying is a memoir. Now, Jesse ha- has written two novels previous to this and is a local author. And this is the story of her, the impact of suicide on her family and the lives that it destroyed and the connections that were made through the trauma that she experienced in her family. Gregory P. Smith is an academic uh, at Southern Cross University. He has written a book called uh, Out of the Forest, which explains part of his life, starting as a child living in a violent household and experiencing violence and abuse throughout all the social systems in our country. He escaped into the forest to try and find sanctuary and to find himself, proceeded to lose himself for 10 years until his physical pain and his uh, mental anguish drove him back out of the forest to try and not rebuild the life but build a life for himself, which he has done successfully and has presented it in a book for us. So welcome, Gregory. And the last... (laughs) Now, last panellist is Brie Lee. And I actually, read. I Uh-oh. went online and I loved, I, I went to some, a website, Brie Lee, and I loved uh, what, what was written about you. So I'm going to read it. Brie Lee is an author and freelance writer. She's also an editor, speaker, academic and photographer who's qualified to practice law but doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great place to start. You, were, you qualified as a lawyer and then you went on the district circuit mm. as an associate to judge. Mm. Why are you not a lawyer anymore? What did you find? Did you walk away with respect for the system? Um, hmm. So a judge's associateship um, is a fancy word for an assistant and uh, the job is typically 12 months and I got towards the end of the year um, and I had a long, hard think about how I could do something about the wild inequality and um, ineffectiveness of um, the justice system that I saw. Um, I worked for a district court judge who did mostly criminal law, and in the district court that means sex offences, child and adult sex offences, and every week would be one new trial and a handful of new sentences. Um, And I just, I sort of looked at the people who were 10 years ahead of where I, you know, was or 30, even 30 years ahead of where I was and I realised that I could make... I might be able to make more change from outside of the system than I could from inside of it and that if I wanted to um, make any change, I would have to toe the line within the law for, for so long mm. um, before I would be in any kind of position of power or influence and I'm a naturally impatient person and that was very unappealing. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. So the making change... For Jesse and Gregory, writing down your experiences, has it, have you found that it's made a change for you? Jesse, was it? Uh, did you find that writing down as a novelist is writing a memoir a great way to address your experiences? Um, I always feel I, mean, I write. I wrote the first draft of staying, you know, more than a decade ago, and it was the first thing I wrote. And the first draft for me was really. Um, a powerful experience and that was mainly because I had nowhere to talk about any of the things that had happened to me and so to be able to write them down it felt like a kind of um, 
conversation that I was having with myself. I had no concept of publication or speaking to a wider audience. It was just like this intense pleasure of finally find, finding um, an avenue to, um, to, to, to actually speak those words. Um, but in terms of... And, and so I wrote that first and then I wrote the two novels and I think I think novels for me are much more pleasurable um, and kind of transformative sort of experiences in that um, you're using your own emotional material and you're using the sort of trauma that you're dealing with to fuel your story but you have this complete control over where it's going or I mean I think a lot of writers don't feel like that they feel like the story has its own impetus and does its mm. own thing which mm. it does but um you know it's so that it's so open whereas a memoir you're so constrained by the things that have actually happened to you I found that there was quite a big difference between the the level of sort of healing I got mm. from those two experiences and interestingly though the prose in staying is much more lyrical uh, than your first novels. Yeah, and I think that's funny too because um, I wrote the first draft of this as part of a therapeutic process when I didn't see myself as a writer and I had no conception that anyone would read it. So for me it was um, – the language was quite joyful and mm. I wasn't at all self-conscious about um, purple prose or, you know, using too many adjectives or – like I had no care for any of those kind of things. So – in a sense, it's, the language was very rich mm. for that reason. And then when I wrote, wrote my novels, firstly, I was in Darkness on the Edge of Town, for example. I was um, in the voice of a relatively uneducated Australian bloke from my town. And he just didn't have that kind of vocab. Like, he was never going to talk like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the same, I mean, you, you're inhabiting the, the capacity of your character... And so, um, yeah, the language is completely different. So maybe that, that's what, what uh, fiction authors say when they have to be true to their character. They have to be true to the voice of their character so they're not going to use delicate prose no. if they're a bloke. No, Because it's paradoxical in some of the scenes. Um, it, it's a story of suicide first of Jessie's sister and then of her father. And some of the scenes where your father is spiralling into madness are so beautifully written. I was stopping and reading sentences with tears streaming down my face going, oh, my God, that's so lovely. You <laughs> know, the, the, the writer kicked in thinking that's gorgeous prose, but what a, what a subject. Do you find that the, the beauty of the writing alleviates any of the darkness for you or, or sets, sets the personal dark experience at more of an arm's distance so you I, can deal with it? I don't know. I would say that but I would I think that the, the pleasure of finding um, the the actual words that fit mm-hmm. um, is that helps I, I don't know if it's connected to beauty I mean I think for my story I was always grappling with a sort of um, a problem in a sense of um, having come from such a beautiful place and such a loving family but having it just dis- dis- detonate in such a profoundly sort of hideous and destructive way so it was like um there was always so much beauty Mm. even though what had gone on was so monumentally disturbing um you you know so I, I, I suppose when you're trying to find language to express that sort of problem then um it is going to be kind of more lyrical or, yeah. You use a lot of uh, metaphors of place and allusions to place as well to address the the emotional feelings. And you say when you went back to the family home after your father's death and you found that it was full of light. Yeah. Blinding light and you realised that he had been the darkness. Yes. That's Mm. just actually what happened. I mean, we went back the day after after he died to to clean up or whatever and it was so bright we got out of the car we couldn't see anything we were like what's going on it was blindingly bright Mm. and uh, then it just suddenly struck us that he was gone Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i mean it's a forest it's actually quite dark normally so yeah the forest is a huge the bush is huge obviously huge motif for you too gregory 
when you went into the forest? When you first walked into the forest, you were simply fleeing from everything in the world that scared you. Did you have... I, I, I read, that's how I read it. Did you have any comprehension that the forest would become your home for 10 years? No, not really, not at the time. Um, you know, on reflection, um, the way I survived a lot of my life was uh, the same way I do now, just live in the moment. And, but, but a skill that I learned early in my life was to forget what was happening and, you know, when I left a town or something, that memory was already erased from, uh, from my mind. So, and I used to have that saying, you know, my forgettery is better than my memory. <laughs> and when I went into the forest, um, I, I, I had, it was, just an, it was just an adventure. It was just a momentary adventure. It was like, here I am. How old were you when you went into the forest? Uh, I was about 35-ish. And you'd lived on the streets since your mid-teens? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Mm. I did try to um, be conventional on on several occasions, but that seemed to create more trauma for me Mm. because there were certain expectations around being conventional. Um, And I just... I just couldn't subscribe to those um, those expectations. Mm-hmm. I, I never, I didn't have the skills. And when you describe your forgettery, how then is it writing it all down in a book, which is so tangible and mm. can be on the shelf for generations to come? <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first thing to think about is that. Uh, it wasn't my idea to write a book. Mm. That was not my idea. Um, it took a bit of coaxing. Um, Who from? From my publicist, mm-hmm. um, a very tenacious person, young woman, a uh, very beautiful person. Um, but when I sat down and I started to actually write it, it was, it was really difficult because I didn't... I had no memory. You know, I just had all these little isolated um, points of pain that were really sensitive and raw that I hadn't really dealt with. They were still trauma. Mm. And, and so um, I needed to sit down and take each of these and put them down and then go away and think about those and, and, and work with those one at a time. Mm. And what I found was that as I worked with each one and as I developed each one and I stopped and I'd go away and I'd think about it and I'd talk to my sisters, um, you know, and I'd go do a little bit of research, go and have a look at the Northern Daily Leader at Tamworth and see what the story said. Mm-hmm. Um, it started... I was starting to connect the dots and so I was suddenly developed... Oh, I've, I've actually got a story. I've actually got a life. I've got a history. Previous to that, it was just, you know, bounce along, do the, you know, just try and survive. Mm. You call your cohort, uh, the people on the street, you call them the forgotten Australians. Reading um, the book at that, to me, they seemed more like the invisible Australians. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit different. Um, forgotten Australians are a little bit different. To, I mean, there's a lot of people homeless and there are a lot of homeless people for different reasons, you know, and, and uh, I'm just acutely aware of how vulnerable we all are. Mm. We all are at, um, you know, just that, that moment of inconvenience that, that robs us of our life. But a forgotten Australian is primarily a non-Indigenous Australian-born person who spent time in out-of-home institutional, out-of-home care as a child. Mm. Um, and that's a very specific cohort. Um, there was a 2004 Senate inquiry into that mm. cohort. And the reason they were called Forgotten Australians, um, and that was the title of the report, um, was because they were forgotten in the terms of reference in the first report 
which was the, we, we refer to that today as the Stolen Generations. Um, and then there was the second report, which was uh, the child migrants. And uh, that was addressing two populations, but then there was this massive big population of people that were actually born in this country, non-Indigenous people born in this country that went through similar things. Mm. So uh, they entitled the report Forgotten Australians. And I think the title fits in really well with, mm. um, with the way that uh, they situate themselves in history. And Bree, when you were writing your work, uh, so Gregory said he would write little little incidents and then try to connect them. Mm. Yours, yours, your narrative of joining the uh, joining the justice system, and uh, so we, we start to read about all the terrible things that you find out about the justice system while you are the associate, and then slowly mm. comes through your own narrative. Mm. Did you start the book? to write about the justice system or did you start to, to write about your own trauma? Um, definitely both because I knew that I was in a relatively unique position mm. of being um, qualified to practice and having worked in not just in the law but in the courts, in the, yep. in the, in the criminal courts um, and also had gone through the process of being a complainant. Um, it was at the end of the year that I was a judge's associate that I went to the police and made a complaint mm. um, about a man who sexually offended against me when I was a child. And it took a two, it was a two-year investigation culminating in a two-day trial. And I knew that not only were there not that many people who had the legal qualifications and had worked in the industry who were then willing to sort of torch their careers by speaking honestly about the problems in that industry, but there were even fewer people who had experienced both sides mm. of that system. Um, and so it was, it was, it had to have that duality. That was, that was the, the point of it. Mm. And have you found, have you had much feedback from people who've read the book so far? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, you can probably imagine, I guess, what my um, email inbox is like. Um, there have also been, interestingly, um, a huge number and intensity of outpourings via Instagram direct messages. And I think that's because women use Instagram and young women use Instagram. And um, young women contact me with stories, with disclosures, with cries for help, mm. with um, just a lot of gratitude, which of mm. course is very touching um, because there's no way they would sit down and write an email, um, but they will finish my book, just sort of see if I have an Instagram, find yeah. me and yeah. just send me a message. Um, but the emails are, or, you know, some of them are, are hundreds and hundreds of words long. Um, I, 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 It takes me a little while to get through them, but I reply to all of them. Um, and in some cases... People have, after I've emailed with them a bit, they have felt confident enough to tell their own stories, yeah. either to their families. One woman wrote um, and said that she'd been, she wasn't alive for, she hadn't been alive for 50 years. She'd been carrying her secret for 50 years. And after reading my book, um, just told her family and got a counsellor. Mm, that's fantastic. Um, and another woman who um, had been really badly mistreated by the Queensland Police Service. Um, the way she was sort of dealt with by an investigator was absolutely subpar. Um, and I sort of said, if you want to do something, this is what it might look like. If you don't want to, it's not your responsibility. You know, however you're feeling is a valid response. What was done to you, the crime was not okay. And also how you've been subsequently treated is not okay. And that was about a month ago. We emailed back and forth a little bit. And then yesterday, um, she told me that she, she had told someone at The Guardian and they had reported on her story and now that police officer's, invested, police officer's actions are being reviewed by the Queensland Police Service. Oh, that's a great outcome. So it's yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you started with a definite purpose in mind. Definitely. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And how difficult was it with such an, a compelling purpose to choose how much of yourself to share? Because you knew it was going to go out there. Yeah. Um, almost the, there was a, I mean, I, hmm, I drafted and then redrafted and then redrafted and, and combed, I would call it combing, um, yeah. through it. 
the thing I really grappled with is that um, these trials and sentences, uh, these are the um, short of death occurring. This is the worst kind of crimes imaginable. Whatever your whatever the worst thing you can imagine is, it's worse, you know, and it's every week and it's relentless. Um, and I really struggled with trying to figure out both other people's, like the, the trials I witnessed and then also my own journey and my own issues. How can I give enough information to the reader so that they have an accurate understanding of how horrific it is without one single step too far and it becoming gratuitous or exploitative? Mm. How do you how do you walk that line? Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just a lot of time and effort and finally just going with your gut mm. and saying, does that is that de- that detail in particular, you know, does that what does the reader get from that? Is it necessary? Is this you know, too much. What I enjoyed about the book, it was a very compelling story, uh, was that you managed to couple the court, the running of the court cases. So you presented the coldness, or not the coldness, but the supposedly objectivity of the courtroom. And at the same time, you related how you were feeling, your mm. visceral reactions, that you wanted to vomit, mm. that you were sweating, mm. that you were feeling the lines on your thighs mm. from where you'd cut yourself mm. the night before, that you were angry and you looked around and saw nobody else angry mm. or you thought nobody else was angry. Definitely. A lot of, <laughs> um, I don't know, what's that, internal monologue? Yeah. Um, and I would take, that, that year that I was an associate, I was taking notes. I had my official court notebook that mm. part of my job was to take meticulous minutes to mark exhibits do all of the proper recording but every day into courtroom I would also just have my notebook Mm. and there are thoughts and feelings in there there are sketches there's a barrister's shiny dollar sign cufflinks you know there are little um caricatures like it it was just um because part of your job as an associate is that you have to be an absolute brick wall it would be wildly inappropriate um, and not okay at all for you to ever show any response to what you are seeing. But when you're in a courtroom, regardless of the outcome of a trial, everybody's already lost. Mm. It is the worst. That, that is the worst day of everyone's lives. Mm. And you have to show nothing. Yeah, and it is so hard. You write with great empathy about the man that you see stand uh, sitting by the glass window, a perpetrator, mm. and you have just railed against him in the previous chapter and the mm. things that he did to his stepchildren. Heinous. And then you find empathy for him as you see and you understand that it's his worst day as well. Mm. How did the judiciary balance that? Behind closed doors, do you all get off and uh, – behind closed doors, you all take off the wigs and the cloaks and hug and hold hands and comfort each other? Christ, no. (laughs) Um, That was part of my real struggle that year was um, being so outraged and so upset and yet not seeing anyone else outraged or upset. Mm. and um, struggling so much with the heinousness of what we had to deal with every day. But the trouble is is that you you cannot maintain outrage. Mm. And often, almost always, I was the youngest and most inexperienced person in the room, in the courtroom, mm. or just in chambers or in the on that level of the building. Mm. Um, and all the people who'd been there for so much longer than me, um, you know, I really admire. We need legal professionals to be able to compartmentalise their lives. I'm not trying to demonise people who can do, do that, but I certainly couldn't, and it meant that I really struggled because nobody was, in my opinion, adequately outraged. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Gregor, you also, you, you, I think maybe your turning point was that you came to the understanding that you couldn't maintain the outrage against yourself and against the world in general and that you needed to have another go at it when you left the forest? Yeah, that wasn't really my realisation. That was a discussion I had with my ancestors and and they um, put the proposition to me that perhaps my anger was a blockage 
um, in my ability to actually live a worthwhile life. Mm. So, I mean, I rejected that in the first instance, but they'd planted the seed. Mm. So I needed to take that away and think about that. And, um, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have a pretty good understanding of what anger, well, what my anger is, where it came from and things like that. But I think the important, um, what, what is important for me to realise is that uh, anger is a part of me. It will always be a part of me. And I need to be constantly aware of how I manage that so that, um, that it doesn't control who I am. Do you think that you're that different from uh, many other Australian males with your style of upbringing? You were raised in a violent and abusive home and then experienced our social support systems, which were also violent and abusive places. So do you think, having experienced that life, you're any different? Your anger is, is so unique? Um, no, I don't think it's... Well, it's not that unique. Oh, yeah, I'm just another human being on the planet. Mm. Um, and I'm responsible... What I've learned over the years is that I'm responsible for me. Um, and I can't be responsible for anyone else. And I think that's whether you're male or female, that's... Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same message. Now, you talk about the ancestors. I love that part of the book, the ancestors and the aliens. I just loved it. Yeah. I, apart from that the book is confronting. It's also a, a very special story. It's an amazing story. And I was hoping that you would do a little reading for us. <laughs> you, yes, sir. Would you do a little reading from that section? No, I just happened to have one here pre <laughs> <laughs> One you prepared earlier. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> talked about before. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, from chapter 28. It's called Intervention. And yeah, we all have some ideas around what intervention is, especially if you live in the Northern Territory. So by the time the aliens came for me, I was in a pretty bad way. Physically, I was erect and my mind was unravelling at a rapid rate. Paranoia was the other order of the day. Excursions into towns were fewer and fewer between, uh, but that didn't mean I wasn't lacking company. I'd spend months at the camp drinking and smoking and thinking that every unexplained sound was something, someone sneaking up on me. Strangely, though, I never saw them. I was pretty sure they were aliens, but I suspected they had a base down near Federal. <laughs> I even went looking for them. Uh, there were a few times when I was on mushrooms, galtops. They were clever buggers, those aliens. Eventually I did get to meet them. It was sometime in 1999. I was having a couple of pipes, polishing off a cup of creek beer with when two of them appeared on the other side of the fire. I wasn't that surprised. After all, they'd been creeping around the camp for months. I didn't say anything. I just stared at them until one of them spoke. So, you've been looking for us. I denied the accusation point blank. <laughs> nope, you've been sneaking around watching me. Yes, we've been watching you, but we haven't been sneaking around. As one of the aliens spoke, I noticed it had no hair and its skin was gothic white, including the surrounds of its mouth. I wouldn't call them lips. They were more like very thin, smooth, plastic tubes. Then how come I couldn't see you when I heard you? You weren't looking. Yes, I was. You were looking for something you weren't sure existed. Therefore, you couldn't see us. You can see us now only because you know we are here. Thank you.
And in such a dark story, there was a moment of whimsy if you could step back and, and allow yourself that little bit of light. Rereading it now, how, how, do you, how do you feel about the way you've recreated? Is, is it accurate, do you feel? Yeah, it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's accurate. Um, if I was to rewrite my memoir now, there would be differences. Yeah. That's not one of them. Okay. Um, there's a chapter in there about Heather. And interestingly enough, I received an email um, a few weeks after the book was published and um, I innocently opened it and read the email and it just said, can I call you Heather? And who's Heather? Heather was a white witch who, um, who um, aided and abetted my existence in the forest. Um, she establishes some networks that I could trade food for marijuana with and, uh, and I could uh, access tobacco and, and painkillers and things that I really desperately needed. And I'd lost contact with her before I left the forest. So when I received that email, um, I, I was, I had never, I never thought it was Heather, even though it said Heather. And it was like, so I emailed back and I said, yeah, sure. And I was in my office and then a couple of seconds later the phone rang and I answered it. Oh, yeah, Gregory Smith. Yeah, I thought you were dead. Well, it took about 40 minutes before I got to say hi. <laughs> and in a, <laughs> then we had a bit of a conversation and she said to me, well... That's the sanitised version, isn't it? And I thought, yeah, probably. But she also told me about the story, um, you know, when she, you know, she met me in, and, um, you know, I was, well, I'd just had a whole lot of mushroom damper, so I was in a pretty good place. But um, she said, I just heard down, down in the markets, it was the Mullumbimby markets, she said, I just heard that they're talking about this really wild man living up in the forest. She said, you want to go and find him? I said, yeah, sure. Let's go. <laughs> you know, I'd learned some tracking skills and I could sort of, yeah, okay. So we spent, we spent about two days looking for this guy. We never found him. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I love the beauty that you were chasing yourself. I've been chasing myself all my life. The book is chasing yourself, absolutely. But what you say leads me to wonder for all of you, who, what you leave in and what do you leave out and who do you trust <laughs> when you're telling your story? In the stages of creating the story, there must have been people that you went to to sound out what you'd written. So how can you trust somebody when, you know, the, the beginning of a story is like a tiny fern unfurling? How do you trust somebody, Jesse? Um, I didn't know. I felt like everyone who knew me and who loved me and who read the story had no capacity to give me critical feedback at all. So all the feedback I got from anyone who had any connection with me was, yes, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I had I have my agent, who Jenny Darling, who's quite a formidable and direct human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, um, she was the only person who would ever say, nah, it's not ready. Yeah. Um, and she said that for years, like for years and years. And she would just basically say, it's not ready, go back and fix it. Um, and every time I spoke to her, I'd cry for, you know, days. She was very brutal mm-hmm. and um, she had some really great feedback, which was hideous to hear. Like at one point she said to me, um, just feel like there's something that you're not being honest about and you don't know what it is yet. Like you need to go away and think about what you're not being honest about. That's great and feedback. I know, and I was like, what? I felt like I'd been so, so, like, revealing. And so I had to go away and have, like, you know, all these little talks with myself about stuff. And it was so horrible because the stuff that you're not being honest about is, like, the last frontier of stuff you never want to talk about. Uh, you never want to – you don't even want to acknowledge to yourself. And um, and that was what the book was missing. And so um, – and the other thing, she, she said stuff like um, – 
it's it's just boring. <laughs> um, and and she said it needs to be it needs to be short and brutal. Yeah. It's a grief memoir, short and brutal. Lose fifteen thousand words. Fantastic. And um and and like. I mean, I I had so much... I had to become so, so resilient to just deal with Jenny Darling um, (laughs) that it's always set me up to be fine for this rest of the whole process. But um, And anyway, I sent back... When when she gave me that final feedback, I cut out 15,000 words that night and I sent it back to her and she said, you are crazy, girl. And then she got back to me within about a week and said, it's ready. But I actually thought that I was stuck in this kind of strange relationship where she was just going to always tell me I wasn't good enough <laughs> and that um, like I didn't necessarily trust her. I didn't know who to trust. Like I trusted the people who loved me mm. and they thought it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I didn't know her in that way or whatever but there was something about her feedback where I suppose when the people that love you always tell you, they're always telling you, know, I, I, I guess I trusted her because it was more brutal Mm. um and yeah and then when she said it was ready which I thought was something that would never happen that I would never be able to meet her standard um I and I I kind of had this sort of realization that it was that that she was right um and and it was a really interesting shift in our relationship too because she had treated me up until that point as though well I felt as though, like, I was just never going to get there and I was kind of not very good at what I did. And then once I met that standard, which was totally her standard, mm. but, the you know, then she just treated me like I was suddenly a genius. <laughs> and it was, um, it was quite strange. So I don't know if anyone else would um, sort of accept that as a standard, but I, I do feel inc- immense gratitude to her because yeah. I feel like she had a very strong... Um, what she actually had was a very strong intuition about what the book could be and wasn't yet and I didn't know that. Like I I didn't know and I feel like it was only her and her persistence and her willingness to be that brutal and her willingness to make me cry (laughs) and um, that allowed the book to get to the stage that it's gotten to and so I I actually feel intense kind of gratitude gratitude and tenderness towards her. Yeah. But it also part of that is what you brought to it, which was trust to trust her, and that's an important thing. I don't really feel like I did trust mm. her. I just, <laughs> I just. But I, you did it. I did it anyway. It was more just like <laughs> stubbornness or something. Desperation. Was, yeah, yeah, it was just. I don't. I don't know because I. I. I was constantly thinking like what is her standard and, like, is it even my standard and, like, are we on the same page? And I didn't feel like that. It was only afterwards once I'd actually gotten to that final and once I'd been willing to, like, face the things I didn't really want to and been willing to admit that there was a part of the text that was very kind of protective and, Mm. you know, that I realised that I... I could trust you her. Could. So I, I built trust through that relationship. But it isn't what I would normally do because normally someone that was that brutal I would be like... And you know yeah. what my next question is? What was that thing that was left out? I think the thing um, that I was most, like, least willing to look at was how much I'd been affected by not being heard. So, like, mm. I could... I'm You know, I've always been willing and happy to talk about... Um, what happened in my family and so and I really came up against the problem of n- n- not there not being a space for that conversation especially like in my Where? town. In, in, oh in your town in your yeah, family? In, no in, not in my family so much as just the the, the community mm. the, the community at large mm. or the culture that we live in yeah and um and I think that when you are um when there isn't space for that conversation, what sort of happened to me is I started to believe that I was really broken and that people were not willing to hear me because there was something terribly wrong with me and I was... I actually felt like I was visibly mangled and that that's why people wouldn't look at me. Mm, mm. Um, So I kind of developed this sort of feeling that I was grotesque in some way and that was like the least thing that I would ever want to look and at. this is in your mid to late teens, this is... Uh, no, I how think... How old were you when Zoe 
I was 12 when Zoe suicided and I was 18 when my dad died. And I think that um, this particular feeling came after that. It was like, it was sort of like in my 20s that I felt, I guess I felt, I think when someone, there's this thing that happens with suicide is that every, like, because often people with the book, they say to me, you're so brave. Mm. And I feel like, well, what am I brave for? Like, it's not. I don't feel ashamed. These decisions that other people in my family made, why are they reflecting on me so mm. significantly? Mm. Mm. Um, but I do feel like they do, like that every, everybody else thinks that I should be ashamed that I've mm. come from this kind of history. And in a sense when it's similar, I, I expect to child abuse victims and mm. stuff who kind of internalise the shame of something that's been done to them. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, I feel like that was the sort of last frontier of what I wanted to reveal about yeah, yeah. myself. And there, there was all that in your school where you said you felt like, you know, that's the, your identity was that's the yeah. sister of the dead girl, the girl yeah, who killed yeah. herself. Bree, did you find that? Do you, do, do you Can you empathise with Jessie's ideas of shame in being a, a victim? Hugely. And the sort of um, I understand when people say you're so brave that they mean it in a good way but... I find it really difficult to articulate why that shits me off mm, mm. because it's like um, – It's like you should be ashamed and you're not yeah, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's like resilient. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, if you're breaking a social moray. Yeah. Um, and I think it's um, – one thing that I've been really happy to, to talk about now that the book is out is that there was a time in my life and it's the time in my life that I document in the book – where I had so much shame and where I was, um, where I let what had been the crime that was committed against me formed such a huge part of my identity and where it just seemed like this insurmountable thing. I couldn't fathom a world where I wasn't so affected by it. And now, zero shame, genuinely zero shame. That's a great It has become a great source of pride. When I get these emails from people describing how they have yeah. made changes in their lives and, and how they felt affected by the book and when I go and, like, meet politicians and, like, talk about these, mm. um, like, legal and social issues and I see change happening and it's like, I, yeah, I just want Power wanted, of speaking out. Yeah, and I just, I guess I think it's just really important. I wish that when I was living through this I had more people I could look to and, and see an example of someone who had had something happen to them who had freed themselves from that shame and that it is possible and you can get to the other side and it's amazing. Mm. I, I would love it if you would read us a section, oh, please, sure. if you could. Um, I'm going to read... Um, so this is a passage um, that appears at the end of Chapter 1 um, and it's in the first week of an associateship, of my associateship, which is, of course, a brand-new world of... All kinds of um, privilege, and it's it's the first the end of the first week, and I'm sort of just beginning to grapple with some of these moral and philosophical questions and questions about my own history. That afternoon, all of the new associates got taken on a short tour of the cells under the building. It was cold down there, and everything seemed large, but it wasn't shiny like upstairs. Cement instead of marble, grey bars instead of chrome arches. At the end of the tour, the security officer asked us if we had any questions, and someone asked if all these temporary holding cells had filled up after the G20 protests. The government had panicked about it. Not even close, the officer said with a laugh. I raised my hand next. I read a newspaper article yesterday that said the prisons at Waycoll are too full and we need more facilities. Is that true? It's not a problem of not enough space at the correctional facilities, he said, shaking his head. It's that we're sending too many people to jail for too long. The longer they're in, the less likely they are to ever truly get out, and it's expensive to keep them incarcerated, and it's pretty awful for them too. We all nodded, as though we, the children from the top of the tower, could ever come close to understanding that dungeon. Back up on level 13, I looked out over Brisbane, bathed in hot yellow sunlight and thought about how all the people in the top levels were university-educated, white-collar overachievers. Far beneath us, 15 stories down, under the ground, near where the cars were parked, we kept the criminals. We even kept the alleged criminals down there, away from the sun. 
My career in the clouds was built on the misfortune and misconduct of the people way below. The chrome impossible without the concrete. I made $50,000 my first year out of university, and I made it from a system that was funded by necessity because people kept doing awful things to each other. From the window where I stood, I saw a group of indigenous Australians gathering in Roma Street Parkland, laughing and sharing food. Following years of invasion and genocide, Australia's First Nations people made up 3% of our population, but almost a third of our prison population identified as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. According to the president of the Queensland Law Society, not a single district or Supreme Court judge identified as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. When I turned from the window, I noticed that artworks hung on most of the walls, accompanied by plaques and explanations, and many pieces were by Indigenous Australian artists. The court's building struck me as a freakishly physical manifestation of Australia's social dichotomy. Way up there, we liked looking as though we liked acknowledgement. We liked the words we could copy and paste to the beginnings of speeches, the box we could tick at the beginning of events to show we cared before we went ahead and didn't. We made large corporate orders to absurdly expensive florists to match our acquisitions of acknowledgement, and those paintings sat silently beside the lilies, well-behaved where we could keep an eye on them. For the first few days of work, I thought that view from level 13 was beautiful. On one side of the building, out through judges' windows, we saw the river and the hills, and on the other, near the elevators, a glinting expanse of modern infrastructure. It only took a couple of weeks for me to turn from the windows. After enough trials and sentences, I realized I was looking out over a constellation of crime scenes. Spots that seemed tiny from way up there were locations, chosen through significance or circumstance, for rapes and bashings. It quickly became hard for me to look at all of the ant-sized people, bustling to and fro, and keep my mind from wandering between them, wondering which ones were the criminals, which ones were the victims, and which ones might be any day now. It seemed impossible that many people would go through that city or along that river or through those mountains, lucky enough to be neither. Perhaps this was because I knew that at the end of the day, when I was walking home among them, I wasn't one of the few lucky untouched. Where we start to learn about your personal narrative that, that underpins and motivates you throughout this book. Another thing you were saying, Jesse, um, about your invisibility, and something we talked about earlier, with all of you, writing gives you some power. It gives you some voice, mm. yeah? Publishing a book gives you some power and some voice. And that uh, does that, Jesse, ameliorate the invisibility that you felt? I, th I think so. I think um, I didn't have any kind of expectation around that feeling being, um, you know, healed or helped by having a book published but I have found um, it's just really beautiful like I mean I get I get so emotional when people come and talk to me at the signing table because mm. they're fucking approaching me and, mm. and I've got this terrible terrible story that everyone's been avoiding for my whole life and suddenly people are coming up to me and I, I actually just feel moved that they actually oh you come close yeah, yeah I yeah. mean you know I, I I every time someone says something like that I feel that invisibility um it it disappears just yeah. the smallest fraction until you know one of these days i'm going to be like fully visible <laughs> the power of being heard yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. would you read for us now oh. so if, if you would read a section of your invisible book that would be lovely <laughs> And then after Jesse's reading, I think we'll be hitting the 10-minute mark and we'll throw to uh, questions from everybody who would like to ask a question. Since my father's suicide, the word trust has gotten under my skin. Mm. If someone should utter it as a way to soothe me, I will go someplace quiet and cry. The very word has become broken. I hear in it only the echoes of its opposite. Hints of leavings, endings, goodbyes, whispers of risk, hurt, harm. But it was not this way from the outset. I was born four, four weeks early, a premie baby, 
delicate and clingy like a nursling possum. My mother tells me I barely slept. She says that in the middle of the night, my father brought me up onto his chest, his strong heartbeat banging there beneath my tiny ear, and I would slip straight into sleep because there was no safer place. My earliest memories all involve the nourishment I found in my parents' bodies, a feeling of being held, of skin settling against skin. I remember no tussles over privacy or space, more a surrender of their bodies to mine. You are welcome here, their touch seemed to say. Come make yourself at home. I slept between them, rolling from one pair of arms to the next. They each had their own smell, distinct and animal. My father had a tiny thatch of hair in the middle of his chest, no more than 20 strands, and pressed up against him in the early mornings, I petted it like pelt. My mother let me play a game, a womb game, though I didn't call it that. She curled up on her side and I snuggled into the triangle between her knees and chest. Cubbies, I murmured, let's play cubbies, and she never refused. My brother was born when I was 20 months old. My parents' friends who lived next door came over to babysit me while my mother gave birth and I woke up in the night to their unfamiliar bodies. The woman whispered, Mummy will be home soon, Mummy will be home soon and I could feel the anxiety seeping out around her. She seemed concerned I might not believe her but there was nothing I was more certain of. Thank you. And yet, and yet... Your mother was a, such a rock through all of the... It, it comes across in the book, it reads that she was so steadfast and so understanding uh, with a great deal of patience. I'm glad you mentioned her like that at the beginning of the book. And uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good describing word for her, steadfast, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, please, my name's Zachary Jane. Please join me in thanking Jesse Cole, Gregory P. Smith and Brie Lee. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.